you have to be pretty cool and calm and collected. You don't want to get nervous. You don't want to certainly never want to panic um, because you need to be able to solve the problems that are presented to you and right. not not get too upset. Yeah. So uh, one time I was swimming down this tunnel and we were going through a an unexplored cave. This was down in Mexico. We found a new passageway going off and we're exploring down this new passageway. And all of a sudden, I'm swimming down the middle of this relatively small tunnel. All of a sudden, something I feel pushes me down onto the floor of the cave. Whoa. And I reach back and there's a big boulder on my back. That had what? fallen off the ceiling and landed on my back. Hello and welcome to Journey to the Rise. I'm your host, Lucretia. This week we talk with Dr. Thomas Iliff, a world-renowned marine biologist and cave diver. You may have seen Dr. Iliff at work and not even realized it, as he has been on several explorations with National Geographic, BBC, Netflix, and so much more. We discuss why being involved with these film productions were never about him, but what he felt was the bigger picture of opportunity to share knowledge and information on a broader scale. For someone who has been featured on billboards, various publications, known all over the world for his discoveries and accomplishments in marine biology and cave exploration, he remains quite humble. As adventure doesn't just wait around, let's get started with our conversation with Dr. Thomas Iliff. Well, I am so excited to have you here. It has been so long since I've had the chance to to just hang out with you and for you to graciously give some of your time. I really, really appreciate it. And I think it's interesting. You're the first uh, interview I scheduled. And when I was looking to like find guests, like you're very interesting. You're super fun to talk to. You're clearly accomplished. But it wasn't until I started doing some research where I was like, came across an article that said famous marine biologist. And I'm like, oh, what did I get myself into? <laughs> so I want to dive in. Where did you where did you grow up? So I grew up in, was born and grew up and raised in Erie, Pennsylvania, uh, which is in the northwest corner of Pennsylvania, right on uh, the edge of Lake Erie. So wow. I was right on the water uh, and always spent a lot of time on the water. It wasn't an ocean, but it mm -hmm. looked just like an ocean because you walk down there to the shore and you can't see the other side. Uh, yeah. until you taste it and find out it's fresh water, you don't realize <laughs> it's an ocean. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's amazing. So is your family very outdoorsy? Did you all like go swimming a lot or hiking? Yes. So my father was very big into, uh, spending time outdoors. Uh, he liked to go fishing, not necessarily to catch fish, but more to spend time outdoors and, uh, just enjoy nature. Mm -hmm. So it didn't bother him if he caught fish or not. <clears throat> if the weather was great and you could have a good time, that's all he needed. That's awesome. So 
you're, you're a big outdoorsy family. Like, what was school? Like, did you have a favorite subject in school? Or were you more interested in just being outside? So, uh, when I went to college, uh, I thought at first I might want to be an engineer. I spent one semester being an engineer and hated the introductory engineering class. So that was the end of that idea. And so then I moved over and I says, well, let's try biology. And I liked biology and I liked the sciences, first of all. So it, it was going to be in the sciences. And so I took introductory biology and introductory chemistry. And I kind of liked them both. So I couldn't make up my mind what to do. And I said, well, let's split the difference and I'll be a biochemist, some biology and some chemistry. Oh, wow. So yeah. I got my undergraduate degree in biochemistry. Oh, wow. Where did you end up going for your undergrad? Uh, that was in, uh, in Pennsylvania at Penn State University. Oh, wow. And uh, uh, then because the winters are very cold and blustery up in that part of the uh, world, I decided, well, let's try something warm and sunny. And so I applied and got accepted at Florida State University. And I spent one semester taking biochemistry there as a master's degree program. But uh, I also took a course in oceanography just for the kick of it. And yeah. uh, I really loved the oceanography. And so that was the end of my undergraduate or graduate program, at least a master's degree program in uh, biochemistry. And I switched over my major to oceanography. So I have a master's degree in oceanography uh, from Florida State University. And I worked there in that program on doing research in dissolved hydrocarbons, oil compounds in the Gulf of Mexico, particularly in the loop current that comes up and swings through the Gulf of Mexico and goes out and forms the Gulf Stream in the Atlantic Ocean. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. So is it during this time that you, like, when did you start getting into scuba diving? Like, are you diving during these this stuff? Are you, like, snorkeling? Like, how did that introduction happen? So, actually, I took my first course. I always have been interested in scuba diving because my dad took me down and watched the local scuba diving club in Pennsylvania do some of their checkout dives in Lake Erie. So, uh, I was young at that time and never got a chance to do it. But at Penn State, I took a phys ed course in scuba diving and actually got certified. Uh, we did our checkout dive in one of the old quarries in Pennsylvania where there was nice. um, murky water and basically you could barely see your hand in front of your face if you were lucky. So that's where I did uh, got started, and, but then when I got to Florida, Florida State, there was a good and very active scuba diving club that I joined, and we used to make trips all over uh, to the Gulf Coast where we dive in the ocean. Uh, we'd take boat trips and go out and do diving, but also we went to some of the freshwater springs in North Florida, in the 
springs or water that's coming out of subterranean cave systems, water-filled cave systems. And so I got an idea that there's um, more to what we see than uh, more than meets the eye. So uh, uh, that's what kind of got me into not only scuba diving, but understanding that there are underwater caves. So how did you, so you're seeing these caves, like how did you get into it? Because you have to be certified, if I'm correct, to do cave diving at least. So I just did some diving right in the entrance of the cave, which is called the cavern zone, where you could see daylight. And I never got in Florida, got into any um, cave diving certifications. That came later in the story. So um, after I got... uh, my master's degree at Florida State. I um, went and applied to a graduate program in Texas at the University of Texas Medical Branch, and they had originally planned to do a saturation diving uh, program that would be out at the Flower Gardens. Uh, The Flower Gardens is a coral reef system that's located 100 miles offshore in the Gulf of Mexico, on top of a submerged salt dome. And it's about uh, 80 to 100 foot depth, water depth. And they were gonna use an oil type of platform, drilling platform in the area as their base of operations. Uh, So they had very ambitious ideas on what they wanted to do. And so that's what tempted me to come to Texas to go to school. And when I got there and went to school for almost a year, at the end of that time, uh, the grant they were applying for got turned down. And so that was the end of the diving program there. It whole thing collapsed. So I'd already put a year into spending time at the graduate school for my PhD. And it was either give up on a year's worth of work or continue on and get my degree in something else. So since I had experience in biochemistry, I ended up getting my PhD degree in biochemistry, working at what was called the Marine Biomedical Institute. And what we did was we did research on marine organisms, using them as test subjects for medically oriented types of projects. So I worked on a marine slug uh, that was called the plesia that is common in both the Atlantic and the Pacific oceans. And it's interesting because the neurons or the nerve cells are so large that you can see them with your naked eye. And you can identify neurons that are the same from one animal to the next. So you can identify one nerve cell, pick up another animal and look at it and find the exact same nerve cell. So it's very unusual in that regard. And we were able to identify neurotransmitter compounds, chemicals that transmit uh, neurological chemical messages from one cell to the next in one neuron in the Uh, this particular animal. So we were able to do things that you couldn't do 
in rats or mice or any other types of terrestrial organisms. Wow, that's fascinating. So that was my um, PhD degree. And yeah. while I was working on the PhD, uh, I had been very enthusiastic about diving, but the diving in Texas was pretty poor. Uh, there's water is very murky, at least inshore. You have to go at least 20 miles offshore to get any kind of clear water. And so that was difficult. So I wanted something else to occupy my time. And there's a lot of interesting caves, both in Texas and in Northern Mexico. So I got in touch with some people who did a lot of trips out to explore the caves and they invited me to come along with them. So we went out and um, I've got very enthusiastic about dry caving, caves that are air filled. Mm -hmm. uh, so we made trips to central Texas, to the hill country. And then also we made trips to northern Mexico in the mountains, uh, the Sierra Madre Mountains, where there's some very deep caves in the mountains that we use vertical techniques, ropes to climb down into and explore. So these were some very exciting and interesting adventures I have yeah. uh, doing this. So I had experience both um, in Florida with a lot of scuba diving and in Texas with a lot of dry caving. That's so I'm getting to the point where I'm almost done with my PhD degree. And I said, well, uh, might be good to find a job after I get done with all this. <laughs> right. uh, I've done enough education. Let's go get paid to do something. So I was looking at Science Magazine. And uh, there was an ad in the very back pages of Science Magazine for a, a job opening. And I looked at it and I uh, said, hey, this sounds really cool. It was a job working as a research scientist at the Bermuda Biological Station in Bermuda. What? Um, and so I said, wow, it'd be nice to live on a tropical island up in the middle of the ocean. Yeah. So I applied. But I found out later there are more than 100 other people that applied for the same position. Sure. It turns out that the person who was reviewing the applications happened to have read uh, the paper, the scientific paper that I wrote for my master's degree on the hydrocarbons in the Gulf of Mexico. So he recognized my name, and because he recognized my name, my application went over immediately to the top of the pile. Excellent. So uh, he calls me up and he says, Tom, you know, we'd like to interview you for the job. I says, cool, I'm going to get to go to Bermuda. <laughs> and he said, well, I'm coming to Texas next week and I'll come down and to Galveston where you are and uh, we can do the interview there. So I was a little disappointed, but indeed that turned out to be very beneficial. So uh, the interviewer arrives in Galveston, and my professor from the university in Galveston and I took him out to a little Italian restaurant. We 
ordered bottle after bottle of wine. Uh, we got the guy really drunk. He must have had a good time because a week after he went back home, he wrote and offered me the job. So, Amazing. Uh, I went to Bermuda and I stayed there for 11 years doing research. Wow. My initial research was tar washing up on the beaches of Bermuda. And there was a big problem with oil tankers pumping out their bilge water out in the ocean. And these clumps of tar would float around in the ocean. And because Bermuda was right in the center of the Sargasso Sea, there was a lot of floating material that would wash up on the beaches and tar balls were one of them. So you wanna have nice, clean, sandy beaches. You don't want lumps of tar and oil polluting your beach. So they were trying to find out what could be done for this. Well, when I arrived in Bermuda, I started looking around and exploring the island and found out within a 10 minute drive of the house I was living in, there were more than a hundred caves. What? And Bermuda's a very small island, uh, so there's nowhere you can go on the island that you're very far from the ocean. Yeah. So when I went into these caves and started exploring, you'd go down a tunnel and it would go down a short distance and you'd come to a tidal, clear, absolutely crystal clear water, saltwater pool that was rising and falling with the tides. And so I says, wow, this is, I haven't seen, I've never seen anything like this before. So I said, uh, and I could look underwater and I could see a big tunnel going off underwater. And so I said, wow, we've got to explore this. I found out that no one had ever been diving in these caves or tried to explore them. So what I did was I got in touch with some friends of mine from Florida who were cave diving instructors. And I invited them to come over to Bermuda and teach a cave diving course for myself and several local divers. And so these people came over. And when we got there, I showed them the caves and they were suitably impressed. But uh, because no one had ever been diving in these caves, every dive we did and we dove in, Avery Dive was in a different cave. Every dive we did was in a completely virgin cave that no one had ever been in before and explored. Wow. So it isn't like diving in Florida where they take their students into well-known and well-explored caves. All our caves were exploration dives when we're teaching the course. Wow. So we had a lot of fun doing that. Um, and uh, it was, I got to learn cave diving uh, and I had friends on the island who were also became certified in cave diving the same time as I did. So we began diving and exploring and swimming around in these caves. And as we got down into the deeper water, it was brackish water, a mixture of fresh and salt at the surface, but down at depth, it was completely uh, marine saline water. So the same salt content as the ocean. And we got down into this deeper salt water layer and we found all sorts of small little white animals swimming around. And 
So these were cave adapted animals and they were only in the deeper water in the caves where it was completely marine or ocean types of salt water. And I collected a few and I showed them to my boss who is a biologist uh, where I worked. And he said, I don't know what they are. And he said, uh, send them off to Tom Bowman who's a world expert at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington. So I sent some of these specimens off to this expert on crustaceans at the Smithsonian. Um, a week or two later, he writes back and he says to me, he says, Tom, I've never seen anything like this in my life. Whoa. When you can get the world expert to say, I've never <laughs> seen it before, yeah. you're doing pretty good, right? <laughs> yeah, that's exciting. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will have more from Dr. Iliff and how he ended up in Romania. We want to thank our supporter, Girl Boss Copywriter. With Girl Boss Copywriter, being a girl boss isn't about the hustle culture. It is recognizing that as a business owner, you can't do it all. Being a girl boss means delegating the tasks that are not your favorite so you can focus on what you do best. If you have a website that still has content on it written by your cousin Danny from 1992, it may be time for a refresher. Girlboss Copywriter offers a free 30-minute consultation that gives you an audit of your website. There's no obligation to you and you get to walk away with three tips on how to increase your connection to your clients. Set your appointment today and find out how you can save yourself time, invest in your business, and watch it grow with a girl boss on your side. Go to girlbosscopywriter.com for more information. Welcome back to Journey to the Rise. Coming up in our conversation with Dr. Iliff, a professor can't help but question his students. And I am subjected to his questioning, and I'm embarrassed to say that I should have known the answer to his question, and I knew it was not Iceland. But to be authentic in my journey, I decided not to edit out my blunder. So without further ado, let's return with Dr. Thomas Iliff. So it turns out that that, was, that animal uh, was a new order of crustacean. So we have was a taxonomic hierarchy for naming new organisms. So at the bottom, we have species. Above that, we have genus. Above that, we have family. Above that, we have order. And so it's pretty high up the pecking order as far as naming new animals. So for example, um, the primates are an order. So it'd be like discovering the primates or uh, the marsupials is an order. So like all the kangaroos and everything in Australia are marsupials. So it'd be like discovering a group equivalent to the primates or group equivalent to the marsupials. But this type of animal even today, there is only one species in the entire order. Wow. It's never been found anywhere else on the planet. Oh. And I've been a lot of places looking for 
uh, in caves looking for animals, and yet we've never found anywhere anything like this. That's incredible. And this is, to put it in perspective, Bermuda is an island that's located 600 miles off the Carolinas out in the Atlantic Ocean. It's actually a volcanic seamount, but it's capped over with a layer of limestone. So we're diving oh. in and exploring limestone caves, but the whole mountain that this is sitting on is all volcanic rock. So limestone caves on top of a volcanic seamount that's long extinct. So there's no eruptions. The last volcanic eruption in Bermuda was 30 million years ago. Oh my gosh. So a long, long time ago. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so that kind of... I got rattling on there a bit. I'm so, so glad. Like, for... how exciting was that for you to realize that you discovered the species? Like, that had to just, like, mind blown. So, when we discovered all these things, that was the end of my tour on the beaches and my beginning of animals living in saltwater cave type of career. And so, I've never looked back. Uh, and that's what I do today. That's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. And you were there for 11 years. Living 11 years. Living on this beautiful space with diving all over, like plentiful diving everywhere. Like that sounds like a dream. Everywhere, everywhere. Like you, there's so, no way someone it wasn't could imagine too bad. that. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, I would say that's like what people it dream is. about and you're living it. That's fantastic. So why would you, what happened that made you leave this fantasy dream situation? Like you're there for 11 years and. Well, there was a, a little fine print in the situation there. The fine print was that I had to get grants to pay my own salary. So I had to write grants. And not only did I have to come up with my own salary, I had to pay the people I worked for wow. um, $25 a day, 365 days a year to rent the laboratory space that I was using. So, um, there was a lot of pressure on you to come up with research grants. Yeah. And research grants are not the easiest thing to get. Right. Uh, for example, a lot of my grants were written to, I uh, had a number of grants from the National Science Foundation in the United States. And the odds of getting a grant being successfully funded is about 15, 10 to 15%. What? So the majority of the time, you don't get funded when you write a proposal. Yeah. Holy cow. So there's a lot of pressure to come up with your own salary. If you don't come up with your salary, if you can't pay um, your boss to allow you to continue working there, well, sorry, that's it for you. Oh, my gosh. So I wanted to get a job that had less pressure on it of to get, um, have the necessity of getting uh, grants successfully funded in order to continue working there. 
Yeah. So what, now, where did you go, go next? I still go back to Bermuda regularly Good. To, do, to do work there. Nice. So you it's still just that I don't. Your... Yeah. So you still maintain all your I contacts? I still have a lot of close friends who uh, live and work in Bermuda. That's amazing. That's fantastic. Who wouldn't want to have friends in Bermuda? <laughs> so you get done with that, then where did you transition off to? What was next? Well, when I actually, when I was in Bermuda, I had, uh, um, I had to get grants. And so some of the grants I applied for were grants that I felt would uh, have less competition for the grants for one reason or another. And so I applied for uh, actually three grants and they were uh, scientific exchange program grants through the National Academy of Sciences. And the National Academy of Science in the US had exchange programs with Academy of Sciences in other countries. So you could go to other countries and you'd go there for six months at a time. And so I applied three times and I wanted to pick a country that would be um, more likely or fewer people would hopefully apply for and I would have a greater likelihood of uh, being able to get funded and go there. And so the country I picked uh, was a country that the first scientific institute in the world for scientific cave research was founded in. And it has numerous caves and very beautiful mountains. Do you know what country that is? I don't, I should. Oh, the US. No? No. It's in Europe. Europe. What oh. country in Europe Oh, I'm being quizzed by the professor. The birthplace of cave research as a scientific discipline. Oh, there's caver friends of mine who will be so disappointed in me right now. I'm disappointed in you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to say Iceland, but I don't think that's right. It's not no, England. that's no, not close. Oh. You're very cold in Iceland. <laughs> it's very cold in Iceland. Oh my gosh. Ooh, the pressure's on. Yes. I wasn't expecting a quiz today. Do you give I, up? I give up, yeah. Okay, so I went to Romania. I would have never And Romania at that time in Eastern Europe uh, was a communist country behind the Iron Curtain. This was in the early 1980s. So I went behind the Iron Curtain to one of the most repressive dictatorships um, in the world at that time. Nicolae wow. Ceausescu was the dictator um, of Romania. And I went there and it was a scientific exchange between the US Academy of Science and the Romanian Academy of Science. And my uh, position was to work at the uh, Institute of Speleology in Bucharest, Romania, uh, that was founded in the early 1900 as the first scientific institute 
of speleology anywhere in the world. Wow. So it was a really interesting, in many ways, opportunity. Uh, so I had all my expenses paid for. Yeah. Uh, the U.S. Academy paid my travel expenses, and the Romanian Academy gave me uh, a beautiful hotel room, place to stay, also paid travel expenses anywhere I wanted to go in the country, and um, they also provided me with a uh, um, biology teacher, Romanian biology teacher from the German high school who spoke fluent English. And so I had someone who was interested in exploring caves, was a caver, spoke perfect English, and would take me around. He loved it to get off work and yeah. come around with me and... Um, go off, we'd go by train usually, get on an overnight train, a sleeper car, and go around the country to the mountains, some very beautiful, beautiful mountains. These are the Transylvanian Alps where uh, the legend of Dracula, of course, started. And uh, I went to see ancient towns and castles and all sorts of things. So. I went there three times, and while I was there, they didn't have any diving, and so I taught not only the first scuba diving course ever in Romania, but also the first cave diving course. Wow. And we went to um, a cave that was out in the Transylvanian Alps in wintertime, there's snow on the ground, and... Uh, we went diving in these caves and teaching scuba diving in these caves in in Transylvania. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, also, that's amazing. Also, I made uh, some trips over to Hungary and did some diving in some thermal mineral springs and taught uh, courses over there in diving and... Uh, also Czechoslovakia, and went into uh, some other thermal springs, very deep caves, and went diving there. So I had a chance to dive all over in countries behind the Iron Curtain, and I was one of the few Americans at that time that had the opportunity to visit and dive in, explore um, many of these beautiful caves. What an amazing opportunity. That's incredible. So how long were you there? So I did three trips um, in 1981, 83, and 85. And each trip was for six months uh, periods. Wow. So where did you transition after your, your last time there? In, um, well, I... I'd pack up my stuff in Bermuda, put it in storage, and then come back to Bermuda. So this oh, was wow. while I was still in Bermuda, and it gave me an opportunity not to have to pay uh, the scientific costs of working in Bermuda, mm -hmm. and did give me a salary to live and work somewhere else. That's amazing. What a fantastic opportunity. 
So I finished up in Bermuda in 1987, and I got a job at the, as an assistant professor at the uh, Texas A&M University in Galveston. Okay. And I was teaching introductory biology at that time primarily. Um, and it was within the Department of Marine Biology Later on, added courses in uh, um, uh, biospeleology, scientific diving, um, and tropical marine ecology. Oh my gosh, that's amazing! And what a fantastic university! Like so highly well regarded. What a great environment to be able to teach and be a part of those courses. Those students must have just been thrilled to have you. So it was a lot of fun, um, and a lot of the things we did, caving, as you know, is something that's not necessarily for everybody. Right. So we had a few people um, that got into the class that discovered, hey, maybe I made a mistake in getting here. <laughs> well, a lot of people loved it. Of course, there's always going to be people that are claustrophobic or aren't used to camping out or don't want to get their hands dirty or things like that. And of course, the things we did involved all of those, as you're well aware. Yeah, if you don't want to get dirty, caving is not not for you. Not at all. <laughs> so with the experience that you've had, and I mean, you have quite the resume when it comes to like seeking invent adventure. Is there a particular cave diving expedition that stands out to you? Oh, there's a lot because I've been all over the world uh, right. doing this. But one of the areas that uh, stood out to me was so when I was, we discovered all this fascinating animals in Bermuda. I began to wonder, well, what else is in caves, underwater, saltwater caves elsewhere? Because nobody really had done this. All the work that had been done on aquatic animals had been done basically on freshwater systems, not on saltwater. And so uh, there was some scientists, some German scientists who were doing work on a saltwater cave, a volcanic lava tube cave in the Canary Islands located off the coast of North Africa, off Morocco in the Atlantic Ocean. And so um, they weren't divers. They had just scooped up animals with a net from the edge of the water. And so I thought, well, this sounds like an interesting place. and No one's been diving here. I wonder, you know, we could find something. So I got in touch with these Germans and they wrote back and they said, you know, Tom, you're welcome to come over here. Um, but we've been working on this cave for the last 20 years. We've done extensive research here. So sorry to bust your bubble, but you're not going to find anything here. Oh. It's going to be a waste of your time. So you know, if you want to come, you can come and join us on a trip. We've got a trip in, I don't know, they said six months or something. And so 
I says, what the hell? Let's, let's go see, you know. And so I got several of my friends to come with me on the trip, and we went over there, and uh, we went to this volcanic lava tube cave, which is huge. The water's crystal, crystal clear. And we mirrored our first dive in the cave, and we came up with an animal that was a new class of crustacea, one group higher than an order. And previously, it had been discovered recently in saltwater caves in the Bahamas on the opposite side of the Atlantic in a limestone cave. Whoa. So here we get a type of animal that's found on opposite sides of the Atlantic Ocean, thousands and thousands of miles apart from one another across the open ocean. And one is in a limestone cave, and the other is in a volcanic cave. And these guys from Germany had never, ever seen this animal before. Yeah. 20 years, and they'd missed it because it's only deep down and far into the cave. And the only way to find it, the only way to get there is by scuba diving, by cave diving. So unless you're a cave diver, you're not going to ever find it. Right. So at, that was the end of their saying, well, you're not going to find it <laughs> routine. Yeah. And we found a lot more stuff in addition to that. So it was a very successful project. And we're still collaborating and working with the German scientists, but they don't give us the routine that you're not going to find anything anymore. <laughs> they learned their lesson. They had the wrong person yes. on their team until you came along and you're like, well, look, let's just see yeah. what we can do. So this, this particular cave uh, starts on land or actually starts at the base of a volcano, goes down the slope of the mountain from the volcano for three and a half miles wow. until it reaches the coastline. At the coastline, it goes underwater straight out to sea and goes for a mile straight out into the Atlantic Ocean. And the name of the cave is the Atlantida Tunnel, the tunnel to Atlantis. Oh, wow. Is that a cool name for a cave? That's incredibly cool. I love that. So you're going those three miles, so, you're carrying all your dive gear, right? No, there's mu multiple entrances in between. Okay. So there's about 20 okay. different entrances where the ceiling of the cave is collapsed in, and there's an entrance uh, within uh, 100 meters of the coastline that you go in. And that entrance that we go in is actually a tourist cave, a show cave, and so we pack up our dive gear, and there's a spiral staircase that we go down where the tourists are going down, and we're going down with the thousands of tourists that are going into the cave. <laughs> and then we walk across a restaurant area within the cave <laughs> and climb over a railing and go down to the edge of a small pool that's beginning of the underwater section of the cave going out to sea. So um, sometimes if 
the people who owned the operation felt generous. They'd allow us to take the elevator down into the cave that goes to the restaurant. <laughs> well, that's nice of them. <laughs> that's fantastic. So in these different caves that you're exploring, especially exploring caves that underwater caves that have never been explored before, do you ever get nervous or scared when you're cave diving? Uh, you have to be pretty cool and calm and collected. You don't want to get nervous. You don't want to, certainly never want to panic um, because you need to be able to solve the problems that are presented to you sure. and not not get too upset. Yeah. So uh, one time I was swimming down this tunnel and we were going through a, an unexplored cave. This was down in Mexico. We found a new passageway going off and we we're exploring down this new passageway. And all of a sudden, I'm swimming down the middle of this relatively small tunnel. All of a sudden, something I feel pushes me down onto the floor of the cave. Whoa. And I reach back, and there's a big boulder on my back what? that had fallen off the ceiling and landed on my back and pushed me down to the floor. And so I shrugged a bit, knocked the boulder off, and continued exploring <laughs> so literally nothing can did you ever have a down. boulder fall on your back i can't say i've ever had a boulder fall on my back <laughs> i do know in drive caves there are times that you have to take off your packs and like deflate your lungs to get as flat as possible through passages is that the case in regards of underwater caves do you have to like take your gear off or push tanks in front of you for passages? Well, a little worse than that. Oh, so good. my uh, a friend of mine that I dive with a lot is one of the, and a lot of my friends are some of the world's expert cave divers. And so one of my friends is a really top-notch, um, very incredible cave diver. His name's Brian Kaycook. He lives in the Bahamas. And he has a, a technique um, that he goes through places that he calls the grinder. Mm. And so he pushes himself into a narrow crack and then he swings back and forth until he can grind the rock down in order to get through. Wow. Did you ever do that? No, no. Did you ever grind the rock? So you could, with your body, I can't so you could that get through. Uh, no. Mm -mm. And this is in an underwater cave, too. Right. And he's, oh, wow. So, That's impressive. So following him is a real uh, treat, real experience. <laughs> Does he mess up the visibility? Because I'm imagining, I know like in an OW cert, open water certification like they taught us different strokes and movements you know that you're doing to propel yourself through water i'm assuming not that i have done any cave diving that you need to be careful to not mess up the visibility um are you are your movements like different 
than what you would be doing. Well, normally you try. That is uh, um, a very important aspect of of diving. It, but in some places, it's you don't have a, a choice. The in order to get through, especially in a in a extremely tight place where your chest and your back are touching. Uh, now, another important feature is instead of carrying our tanks on our back like normal open water scuba divers do, mm -hmm. we carry our tanks under our arms. And we have two tanks uh, because we need more gas. You use one third of your gas to go into the cave, one third to come out of the cave, and one third for emergencies. Wow. So uh, you can only swim in on one third of your gas supply. So you need two tanks. The tanks are under one under each arm. Mm -hmm. And so in that way, you have a much lower profile and allows you to go through smaller places. Sure. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. So it's like in dry caves, taking your tank off or your pack off your back mm -hmm. here, we're carrying things, and in some places, um, if it's really tight, you can unclip uh, your tank and from under your arm and push it in front of you. Sure, sure. Wow. Quite the adventure. And speaking of adventure, I read that you led a team of nine d other divers and you descended 462 feet into Phantom Springs Cave in West Texas making it the deepest underwater cave dive ever in the U.S. I want to talk about this because conventional scuba diving, if I remember correctly, is like 130 feet. And so my yes. understanding, and help me understand, because I'm only OW cert, I don't dive a whole lot. So, But to my understanding, deep dives deeper than 197 feet need, is it a hypoxic trimix? Um Yes. And, and, yes. and like, because like, I think was the helium replaces the nitrogen and oxygen content. Like, how do you, first of all, how do you plan for this? You were just explaining you need to plan a third of your oxygen in a third out, a third from emergency. So now I'm assuming you're planning extra gas that you're taking with you. Like, did you suspect this passenger would go? And it's not like dropping into a vertical cave and bouncing back up. Like... Take me down the journey of this accomplishment. This is fascinating. Okay, so the story is that I'd heard about this cave and other people had been exploring it. And they explored a mile into the cave, but it was basically a horizontal tunnel at relatively shallow depths, anywhere from 30 feet or less down to about 80 feet maximum depth. So it was kind of moving along up and down, but never going down very much. And this other team of divers got a mile into the cave, and that was about as far as they could go with the equipment and the technology they had at that time. Sure. So that was basically the cave was still continuing. It was just that they weren't able to go any further than a mile in. So I thought, well, I've got some friends who were, again, world expert cave divers, uh, and I invited them 
to come over from Florida, I got uh, the cave was actually owned by the federal government, by the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation. So I had to apply and get a permit from them. And it was very difficult to get a permit from them. So it took me about a year or more to apply to finally get a permit. Wow. So um, after great difficulty, I got a research permit to go in there and allow us to go diving. And so the first year we go over, um, we go out into the desert in West Texas in December, I think, or January, middle of winter, we go out there and we get out there and it starts snowing. What? So here we are in the desert in, in Texas and it's snowing. <laughs> so we drive out on these ranch roads to get out to this spring and this iron gated bars over the entrance of it. Um, so we start diving there and we're using, our team is using closed circuit rebreathers. So this is a device that recycles your gas when you exhale. With normal scuba diving, when you exhale, there's a stream of bubbles that come up for the water. Uh, and when you inhale again, it's out of your tanks. So every time you exhale, you're losing all the gas that you've got out of your tanks. With a closed circuit rebreather, when you take a breath and exhale it, it goes through a carbon dioxide scrubber that removes the carbon dioxide out of your exhaled gas. You put in a small amount of pure oxygen, 100% oxygen in tiny amounts, and you breathe in that same gas mixture again. So you're breathing it over and over again, just going around in a big loop, recirculating it, and there are no bubbles. So oh, wow. you can stay down much longer. You can have very small little tanks. And basically with my small little tanks that I have, which are about one third the size of a normal scuba tank, I can stay down as much as eight to 10 hours at any depth. Holy so it's not cow. depth dependent. With normal scuba diving, the deeper you go, the shorter you can stay. With a rebreather, doesn't matter how deep you are, except for the decompression you're gonna have to do at the end of the dive. But as far as gas staying down, um, it doesn't matter because you're only using this tiny little bit of oxygen that's out of your small scuba tank. And it's what you use the amount of oxygen that your body absolutely requires for metabolism. And that's very tiny in comparison to um, open circuit scuba where you're wasting a lot of oxygen and gas every time you exhale. Right. So we were using these closed circuit rebreathers, but we anticipated the cave was going to stay at the same depth. 30 to 80 feet or so. Mm -hmm. So we have the gas supply and everything set up for diving in reasonably shallow depths. 
So we send a team out. We have an explore exploration team. They go out and they get a mile into the cave. They reach the end of the guideline, the exploratory guideline of the other divers. They tie in a new guideline and they start exploring. And almost immediately, the cave starts dipping, stair-stepping down. Whoa. And they get down to a depth of about 190 feet. And they can look down this huge underwater shaft. And it looks like it's going to 250 or 300 feet or more. But they don't have the proper gas mixtures to be able to go down that deep. So this was all on their very first dive in the cave. And oh so they God. came back out and they can't go any further. That's as far as they can go. So um, we organized another expedition a year later. And this time they come out with gas mixtures that allow them to go much deeper. And so this time they go down to the... 460 odd feet and the tunnel is still going on and they have little scooters that are pulling them along like uh, torpedo-like devices that yeah. the divers are holding on that are towing them through the water and one of the scooters torpedo-like devices implodes <gasps> from the, from the water pressure it just gets crushed because Holy the water pressure is so high at that depth. Oh, my god! Fortunately, the other diver, uh, they were able to hold on to one another and use the remaining torpedo uh, scooter to pull them out of the cave. Oh, my gosh. Wow. And so that's where they had to stop in the cave. The deeper they went and the further into the cave they went, the larger and larger the tunnel was getting. So oh, they gosh. were nowhere near the end of the cave, but because of the depth and the fact that they're already a mile into the cave, in most caves, in deep caves, it's right at the entrance. So you enter the cave and you immediately go straight down. This cave, you enter the water, you swim a mile in, and then you go down. So it's considerably more complicated because sure. you do your decompression a mile into the cave, and then you have to swim a mile out of the cave going up and down and up and down to get out. That's intense. So it's a type of diving that no one had ever done before sure. as far as the decompression requirements. So they're basically... Uh, doing things that no one had ever done as far as diving. That's amazing. And with the decompression, like how and long does that take to go in and out, taking that into consideration? Oh, it take well, it's the coming out that's the problem. Right. The coming back up and going out that's the problem. And it would take about uh, four hours or more for them to do the decompression that was required. Yeah. Wow. So um, we actually were too successful at our project. 
So we wrote some very cool articles. You've seen, probably seen some of them. Yeah. But uh, the Bureau of Reclamation was at first very impressed uh, with what we'd done, amazed because no one expected this to uh, be the case. And um, they wrote a little article in their newsletter about uh, the work that we were doing on their property. It turns out that a few months later, the uh, a person who is an employee of the Bureau of Reclamation in California was walking across a, a frozen strip of land on a dam and he slipped and he fell over the dam and unfortunately he it was a fatal accident oh my god so the head of the bureau said well we've got to be more safety conscious we're gonna get rid of any projects or operations that are too dangerous well what can be more dangerous than cave diving to 460 feet, he figures. So our permit gets yanked. Oh, no. And so we no longer have a permit. Uh, we're not allowed on the property. And that was the end of exploration. Oh, my God. Well, the good news is, is that the Bureau has turned over the property that they were operating on to the rancher who owns the adjacent ranch. And so the Bureau of Reclamation no longer owns the land. And we've been talking to the rancher and negotiating possibilities for going back to the site and continuing exploration in the cave. Oh, that would be so exciting. So I hope that works we're, out. Got our fingers crossed yeah. that we can get back in there, um, get permission from the rancher. We've talked to him, and he seems amenable. We haven't worked out all the details. Sure. Uh, but it's not a site that I want a lot of people to swarm out and go to. Right. Um, if it's too popular, too many people try to get in there, the rancher is more likely to get upset and say nobody gets in. Right. So it's a site that is not open to the general public. Good. It is way back on private ranch land, on ranch roads. There's a number of gates that you have to cross in order to get there. Um, so we need to be work very closely with the owner of the land and stay on good terms with him. But on the same time, we need to make sure that we don't inadvertently attract other people to try and go to the site, either bothering the landowner or going in illegally yep. uh, to get to the site. So I think you're familiar with that or can appreciate that type of situation Absolutely. that there are places that not everybody in the world can go to yeah and you want to be respectful of someone's land especially since this is turned over to a rancher it's just the right thing to do is respect 
the privacy of that person's property. And when you do take the right route of getting to know a landowner so that they can get to know you, you build a trust and you don't want someone to come along and break that trust because it's- Absolutely. Yeah. And so you have been on billboards, you've been on the Discovery Channel, the History Channel, National Geographic, like, how did these opportunities come along for you? Were you just like sitting, sipping your coffee? It was like, ring, ring. Oh, hello, History Channel. Like, how did this happen? Sure. That's exactly how it happened. <laughs> I so, had um, a feeling I was going <laughs> to. That's exactly how it happened. Doesn't that happen to you? No, no. Clearly, I need no. to spend more time with you so opportunities like that do start happening. <laughs> Sure. So I have published um, quite a few papers. Uh, if people look in the scientific literature, look for caves or cave animals, my name often pops up. And uh, so once you've done, got invited and participate in uh, one or two of these, then your name is out there and people are looking for other documentary films that were done in the same general type of area. And uh, uh, that's how I've been able to uh, get involved in this. It's uh, uh, just get invited. And one of the reasons why I feel this is important is not to promote me or my name, it's to get out there and reach out to the general public. And so I can teach a class in, in school and there may be 20 or 30 kids in it at most. Uh, that's fine, that's, that's great, I love it. But if you wanna reach out to more people, the best way to do it is through television. I can reach out to millions, maybe tens of millions of people all around the world with doing a, a documentary. Recently did something on Netflix. Uh, so um, I've done several with National Geographic. Uh, I've done one with BBC, with uh, PBS, uh, Nova, uh, Discovery Channel, almost you can French uh, um, broadcasting, public broadcasting, German public broadcasting. So basically all around the world. And it's uh, been um, very lucky and very fortunate to do that. And I had one of my students in Texas came in and told me his dad was in uh, Moscow at a uh, conference. This was years ago, mm -hmm. and he was turned on the television set in his hotel room, and there I was in <laughs> Moscow <laughs> talking about cave diving. That's fantastic. Or another uh, friend of mine is, was in the military, was in South Korea, and went into a little restaurant to have dinner. There was a television on, and there I was on TV. Uh, talking about cave diving in Korean, no less. <laughs> so, 
That's so exciting. And I agree. I think it helps people see like a space that they don't get to explore. It inspires other people who have an interest just like you did when you were an undergrad student. And so, yeah, you get to reach all these people with your passion and, and like something you're, you're so well versed on. It's, it's really exciting. So since you've worked with these, um, different ones are you kind of like the go-to guy like when national geographic and history channel have something going on do they basically are they the ones like texting you or speed dialing you to well i i don't get in every film that's made uh right. on these lines but uh i have been in quite a few and just uh, most recently the history channel doing a film in the bahamas um on the bermuda triangle so I've done, this is about the third Bermuda Triangle film that I've done. So maybe I'm getting typecast for the Caves <laughs> in the Bermuda Triangle type of work. I think it's a good place to be typecast. Definitely. Now you recently retired from teaching. How did that feel to walk away on your last day? Well, uh, Good and bad. I uh, I enjoy teaching and I do enjoy doing research, but there was an increasing amount of bureaucracy at my university and probably at most other universities. So more and more paperwork, more and more committees that you have to be on. And uh, that took away from the time that I could devote to teaching and certainly the amount of time that I could devote to research. And so uh, I at I want to continue research. I'm still continuing uh, being involved. I'm still continuing publishing papers. Uh, I think I sent you a copy of a uh, paper that I just came out. Uh, yeah, that was really uh, interesting. A few days ago, actually, on a describing a new species of cave animal from, from Bermuda. It was specimens I collected 40 years ago that uh, finally someone got around to looking at and uh, turns out that they had seen a new species there and uh, it got described and I got uh, help to contribute to it and be listed as a co-author. That's so cool. Because you've discovered, now I've Please correct me because I saw several different numbers. Is it over 300 or like over 350 species that you've? I have to do a update my count. Uh, there's been a lot, uh, somewhere between 250 and 300 probably. Wow, that's amazing. That's absolutely. And I've published uh, uh, approximately 270 scientific papers. That's fantastic. A lot of hard work. You definitely have not been yes, just sitting yes. around in, in your office. Um, you've definitely been out there. And speaking of out there, I mean, you, you've done what, around 1,500 cave dives? Something like that, oh yes. Again, there was a time that I didn't, unfortunately, keep good track of how many dives I was doing, especially when I lived in Bermuda. I'd go out almost every day and go uh, diving. And so um, my count, unfortunately, <laughs> isn't as good as it should be. I regret that. Yeah. But 
So you you talked about one of your dives, or I came across a, a document where you talked about one of your dives being filmed privately in a uh, own cave, a cenote, um, that wasn't open to the public. But um, the entrance pool had a 10-foot-high ledge and a crocodile. And there was, and you, yes. you talk about there was no quick way out, but fortunately the crocodile tends to be more shy than aggressive. Um I'll get to the important stuff, but let's talk about your crocodile friend. How do you discover he's he's more of an introvert than an extrovert? Well, you can see him swimming around on the on the surface of the water, um, but it did get kind of nervous when you're. Uh, some of our dives we did, we went in later in the afternoon, and they were long dives. So by the time we got back to the entrance, we did our decompression and we got out it was pitch black at night and so you're swimming around in this relatively small pool uh it's totally dark at night and uh, you know that there's a crocodile living in there he can't get out there's no way for no place for him to go he yeah. can't go through the cave although actually we did find the bones of several crocodiles back in the cave Oh, wow. Old bones. Now, these could be hundreds or more years old. Sure. We don't have no idea how old they were, but uh, they're quite a ways back in the cave. Oh, my gosh. On that expedition, did you find what you were all hoping to find, or were you just checking out? Yes, yes. Yeah, it was uh, a cave we've been... Um, going back to a lot because it's one of the more scientifically interesting caves in the area with very rich biology. Uh, we don't know why it's so rich, but it has more animals, um, cave type, cave adapted animals uh, than we've seen in any other cave down there. And why that is, um, and it's just in a small place in the cave too. It's not everywhere all through. It's a big cave, but the animals are all clustered in a relatively small area in the cave. And we don't understand. It's a mystery why they're living there in such abundance. Um, because these caves are totally dark, okay? So there's no light. There's no plants. There's no photosynthesis. Right. And because there's no photosynthesis, there's relatively little food, and there's no photosynthetic production of oxygen. So all the oxygen in our atmosphere comes from photosynthesis, and there's very low levels of oxygen back there. So the question is, is what are these animals eating, and how are they able to survive in a very low oxygen environment right. so dealing with little food and little oxygen doesn't necessarily promote large populations of animals you mm -hmm. would think mm -hmm. but this isn't the case so what's going on there i don't know yeah we're still working on that question we've got a lot of questions every time we get an answer to one question it opens up half a dozen other new questions but that has to be so exciting to get those other questions because then you want to know more information 
I think that to me that would just sure. make it even more more thrilling and exciting. So how do you get out of the water when you had to drop down from a ten foot ledge? Um, how do you get out of there? Well, fortunately, there's one place a little further down from where we jump in where a tree has fallen in and its roots are still in place and it's just the trunk is laying in the water. So we can climb up on the trunk of the tree and then we can uh, have people, we usually leave someone behind up on the surface and they come down and grab our tanks and uh, hoist our tanks once we unclip our tanks and hand them up. And then we can climb up on this tree and there's another tree again halfway up above it and kind of work our way up out. Yeah, wow. It's but like getting a... in, the easiest way to get in is just to, to jump in. Unfortunately, sure. you can't just jump out again. Right. <laughs> if only it could be. Jumping in is easier than <laughs> jumping in 10 feet is easier <laughs> than jumping out 10 feet. Right. Now, when you jump in and you have your tanks in front of you, do you hold on to them in your mask when you go in? Or yeah, what's the... usually you can, or what you can do is uh, we have a rope and you can jump in without your tanks and then you can have someone lower your tanks down. Oftentimes what we do is uh, one person jumps in and we lower the tanks in and the tanks have clips on them and we can clip them on to a line mm -hmm. uh, right at the water surface. That and so sense. everybody else can jump in and you swim over and you unclip your tank and put it on you. Yeah, yeah. So I know that no one can be you, but I know that you are inspiring a lot of people. And if someone has this kind of interest in marine, marine biology and the science and, and underwater exploration, um, and maybe even dream of being recruited by the History Channel or Discovery Channel, like what advice would you have for someone who wants to aspire that? cool <laughs> well first of all um, what I did was took my time in getting there so there's no quick way to instantly get this done so you want to get experience at what you're doing for me it was getting experience first of all in open water diving getting a lot of dives in diving in a variety of environments in open water and then also getting experience in dry caving. So how do you explore dry caves? How do you find your way around? How do you get comfortable in them? How can you do vertical caves where you have to basically go down a rope in order to get in or out of the caves? So, you know, in order to, to do this, you need to work slowly, take baby steps. Not all of a sudden say, I'm going to jump and do the most difficult thing I can instantly. That doesn't work. So work your way in, get experience in open water, get experience in, in dry caves where uh, it's not, you're not going to run out of air. You don't have to lug big tanks of gas around with you. And then take courses in cave diving. And in cave diving, there's basically four levels 
to cave diving. The first level is called cavern diving, and this is diving in the entrance zone of caves where you can always look over your shoulder and see daylight. And you have um, a relatively moderate depth limit that you cannot exceed. You always have to stay within sight of daylight. Uh, you make sure that you use this one third rule, so no more than one third of your gas uh, to go into the cave before you go out of the cave. Um, you need to have at least uh, three lights. So if one light burns out, you've got two lights that will take you out of the cave. So all sorts of things like that. And this is called cavern diving. Then you go into introductory introduction to cave diving, and that's going a little further into the caves, uh, having two tanks on you, having more gas, but only going in a short distance further than you had on the cavern diving. And then apprentice cave diver, you go a little further, you can stay a little longer, and then finally, full cave diver is where you can go quite a bit further. Okay, wow. so yeah. each of these steps, you take the course and then you get familiar with what you're doing, take your time in doing it before you jump to the next level. So it's a long process. And then if you, and this is just the diving and the caving. Now, if you want to add science onto the mix, you're adding a whole nother level of complication. So most people, when they're diving, only do the diving. Trying to do science in diving makes it even more complicated. Sure. So just take your time. Get good at one thing before you move on to the next thing. Don't try to overload yourself. And that makes sense, especially when, I mean, science is a complicated, um, you know, topic alone. There's a lot to learn and, you know, the different aspects to it. So rushing through it, I think, if you are a science-minded person, is not, not going to ever happen. But I appreciate that advice because I think there's people who see someone at your caliber. They're like, oh, well, I can just do blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, this was clearly years and years of dedication and hard work of something that you were truly passionate about. Well, I know you have to go. I really appreciate your time. You are absolutely amazing. And I appreciate, you know, all the time that you gave me today. And um, you're just, for as much as you have accomplished, you're a very down to earth, humble person. And I appreciate that. And I appreciate uh, being able to call someone like you, my friend, and hopefully we can, you know, get together and go caving again or on a hike or, you know, something. Oh, yeah, something. yeah, that'd be fun. That you would be fun. some adventure, right? We always need adventure. Absolutely. Okay. Right. <laughs> That's it for this week. Next week, we speak with aerial performer Jessica Thomas. They're just doing insane tricks, and I'm like, why can't I do that? Like, I feel like I'm as flexible as her, probably. Why can't I do that? Like, and then I have to, like, put the phone down, and I have 
had to write down like I started writing in a journal and Good. just writing like over and over like Good. don't compare yourself focus on your journey everybody takes their own steps to get where they need to go Hey, thanks for listening to Journey to the Rise. Please do follow us on your podcast app so you can have the latest episode downloaded. Speaking of downloads, I want to thank all of you for listening. We have listeners from all over the U.S., Washington State, Wisconsin, Tennessee, throughout the Midwest, and California. We also have listeners tuning in from Africa, Asia, Europe, and I am thankful you are all here. We want to thank our support, Girl Boss Copywriter. This episode was produced, researched, and edited by Girl Boss Productions. My name is Lucretia, and you have been listening to Journey to the Rise.